also want to ask you um, to be in prayer for Malcolm and Joyce Grant. Their son, Phil, has uh, been diagnosed with cancer. So they're going through a really hard time right now. And uh, just remember them in your prayers. Father, we thank you so much that um, you are aware of all the situations in our life. You're aware of how difficult this has been for all of us. But you are able to make all things work together for our good. We don't see that yet, but uh, we know that you are the one who has the ability to do that. You've done that many times in our lives, and you will continue to do that. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing right now. Be with Malcolm and, and Joyce and Phil especially, and just uh, the family there, and strengthen them and encourage them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called It's All About Jesus, and uh, we've looked at the uniqueness of Jesus in session one, then we looked at the identity of Jesus, and today we're going to take a look at the greatness of Jesus, one of my favorite topics. In uh, the novel Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, there's a famous scene where the orphans are eating their meager rations. And suddenly, young Oliver breaks ranks and takes his empty bowl up to the lunchroom supervisor and dares to ask, Please, sir, I want some more. More? He's absolutely flabbergasted. This is outrageous. It's unheard of. This has never happened before. No one had ever been bold enough to ask for more. I think that scene is replayed in many churches. While some people are impatiently anticipating the service to end because they've had enough, they're eager to continue their socially distanced pursuit of happiness, but there may be some that are still hungry. Please, pastor, I want some more. Unfortunately, all we can offer you on Sunday morning is uh, some appetizers. To get the full meal deal, you have to go to Jesus. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. The possibility of something more. During this annual festival, Jerusalem was filled with people who believed that someday God was going to pour out his fullness once again. They were waiting for some kind of divine intervention. The focal point of that ceremony was uh, when the priest would lead the jubilant throng down to the pool of Siloam and draw out some water while the crowd recited Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. Then they'd return to the temple where the priest would pour out the water while the crowd recited Psalm 118.25. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. And it was probably at that very moment when a hush fell over the audience that a voice in the crowd called out loud and clear, If a man is thirsty... Let him come to me 
and drink. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For the most part, Christ's ministry was low-key, subdued, subtle. He didn't often raise his voice. Jesus avoided hype and hoopla. But there were times when he had to get the attention of the people. And so Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, come to me. If you're looking for more, if you're thirsting for the living God, come to me. Just imagine that scene happening today. What if Jesus entered a shopping center at Christmas and seeing the people rushing from store to store or the the lines at the lottery booth, he suddenly cries out, the pagans run after all these things, but your heavenly father knows what you need. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Or how about Wall Street? In the furious rituals of greed, in the riot of buying and selling, they hear the voice crying out, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or how about the UN? where the nations are deadlocked, where accusations are hurled from one power block and threats echo back from their bitter enemy. Suddenly, there's a voice from the visitor's gallery. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is still crying out. If you're not satisfied, if you want more, then come to me. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus said, if a man is thirsty, we know that water doesn't quench thirst unless you internalize it. It does no good to stand at a distance and admire Jesus and applaud politely or register a like on YouTube. You have to internalize him because salvation is intravenous. You ask Jesus into your heart. That's where transformation begins. In the next verse, verse 38, by this he meant the spirit whom those believed in him were later to receive. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Having Jesus within us not only satisfies the deepest longings of our soul, there is a surplus. Our cup overflows, the floodgates open, and others can be blessed by that. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The Holy Spirit is the source of overflowing, effervescent, superabounding sufficiency. And that's why Paul issued his command in Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled 
with the Holy Spirit. So the invitation still stands. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And that's one of the common denominators of humanity. We are all thirsty. Every one of us is longing for something more. And yet, we often go to the wrong places to quench our thirst. Many seek satisfaction in the dating scene, which often degenerates into sensual indulgence. And it's also a major cause of heart disease. There are so many unhealthy relationships and broken hearts in that area. Others seek satisfaction from success, only to find that mainstream materialism is polluted with toxic levels of greed. Or you can turn to self-help books, but eventually you find yourself in a swamp where your life becomes stagnant with selfishness. Our culture has many pleasures and promotions on tap, but Jesus offers so much more. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, that's quite a claim. Who does he think he is? But what if it's true? He's had repeat customers for 2,000 years. Is he the one who can truly satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts? Is he that great? And how do we measure his greatness? Can we measure it? Well, that's exactly what the Bible does. So I'd like to give you a few examples. John chapter 4, verse 12. Here's a discussion between Jesus and a woman at a well. And she asks him, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Here's a discussion between Jesus and a Samaritan woman on the subject of thirst taking place in the sun-scorched regions where nothing was more important than water. Fortunately, the people living here had a well which had been providing water for almost 2,000 years. And Jacob was the one who discovered that well. So to these people, no one was more important than Jacob. His was the name above all names. And here comes Jesus who declares, everyone who drinks this water is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. It will become within him a well springing up to eternal life. Jacob's discovery had provided fresh water for these people for many generations. And that was great. That was so important. But Jesus took her measuring line and extended it into eternity and beyond. Jesus offers living water so that she would not ever thirst again. And that was really the unresolved issue in her life because she had a serious drinking problem. In her thirst for love, she was looking in all the wrong places. Six wells had already run, run, run dry for her. She'd had five husbands, and now she was with number six, but still not satisfied. 
until she met the one who was greater than Jacob. Because only Jesus could give her more so that she would never be thirsty again. How do we measure his greatness? Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Based on hard statistics, Jonah was the most successful evangelist, the greatest missionary of all time. You see, his assignment was the city of Nineveh, the greatest city on earth. It took three days to travel across that sprawling metropolis. It was the most powerful city and the most morally polluted city on the planet. But God was giving them one last chance. So Jonah was sent to Sin City to warn them about judgment. And the response was overwhelming. It says in Jonah 3 verse 5, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. In fact, verse 6, it says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Unbelievable. Has anything like that ever happened? Imagine the entire city of Las Vegas repenting. Casinos turning into cathedrals. Nightclubs hosting prayer meetings. Gambling tables occupied by people studying the Bible. That's kind of what happened in Nineveh when Jonah showed up. The response was off the charts. He should have wrote a, written a bestseller about that. Could have entitled it The Inside Story on Whales. Jonah was an incredibly successful missionary. And so now here's Jesus, who says he's greater than Jonah. In fact, he's the greatest witness in human history because he's the only eyewitness. And yet, the response he gets is modest. Many question him. There's a lot of haters. Show us a sign. You speak blasphemy. You're demon-possessed. Tough crowd. If only Jonah was here. But Jonah, for all his success, ended his mission bitter and depressed resenting the fact that God had saved the people of Nineveh. It's not fair. They don't deserve it. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. For Jesus dispenses amazing grace to the undeserving. Thank God that a greater than Jonah is here. How do we measure his greatness? The next verse, Matthew 12, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, 
For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was the most flamboyant, most internationally famous king that Israel ever had. Forget Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Solomon was the richest man on earth. And he didn't have to send out any package of foreign kings and governments. It says that Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his Kentucky thoroughbreds. He commanded 1,400 chariots. He was a brilliant administrator, a first-rate architect, a commercial mastermind. He was an expert zoologist and tree hugger. He was a prolific songwriter and poet with literary skill to rival Shakespeare. He was one of the most renowned philosophers in history and possessed profound psychological insights and counseling skills. And he also possessed an unrivaled fashion sense. And what a family man. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Although I think there's some paraphrases that say porcupines. Maybe that's because of all the sharp disagreements. There was a lot of needling going on in that family. But was there anyone greater than Solomon? But you know, it was his reputation for wisdom, above all, that won him worldwide acclaim. So much so that the Queen of Sheba endured hundreds of miles of scorching desert travel to visit Solomon so that she could see for herself. And afterward, she claimed what she saw far exceeded her expectations. Well, a thousand years later, someone greater than Solomon appeared, whose wisdom was at a much higher level, as high as the heavens are above the earth, Because Solomon, the wisest man of his generation, made some very foolish choices. He turned his heart away from God and ended his life tasting the bitterness of regret. Thank God that someone greater than Solomon is here. And yet, unlike the Queen of Sheba, most people couldn't be bothered to drive five minutes to go to church where his wisdom is proclaimed. How do we measure his greatness? In John chapter 8, Jesus finds himself in the middle of a controversy where he dares to claim superiority to Abraham. John chapter 8 Verse 52, at this the Jews exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And yet you say, if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? To the Jews, Abraham was number one, the greatest of all time. Like Muhammad Ali in boxing, or Wayne Gretzky in hockey, or Michael Jordan in basketball, or Tom Brady in the NFL, or Roger Federer in tennis, or Ken Jennings on Jeopardy. 
Incidentally, speaking of tennis, unlike Rafa Nadal, I am undefeated on clay. But that probably doesn't count for very much. But to the Jews, there was no one greater than Abraham. He was the father of their nation. They were all the children of Abraham. Their relationship to God was all because of Abraham. That's what made them the chosen people. But that wasn't enough. They needed something more, as John the Baptist pointed out in Luke chapter 3 when he said, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. It was Jesus who was offering these people something more. Because their relationship to Abraham placed them in God's earthly nation. But their relationship to Jesus brought them into God's eternal family. As it says in John chapter 1 verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We are all God's creation. But through Jesus Christ, we become the children of God. Thank God that someone greater than Abraham is here. How do we measure the greatness of Jesus? Well, the book of Hebrews brings up another great name. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Now Moses was a great man. I mean, if you look at his achievements, at the things he accomplished, it's unbelievable. He brought the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. What a colossal task in all of history. Has there ever been anything like this? Ten great plagues, dividing the waters of the Red Sea, delivering the Ten Commandments, building the tabernacle, providing manna, all the miracles in the wilderness. That's quite a resume. Who has ever accomplished so much in a lifetime? You know, when you have kids, when you have a family, it's hard to get them ready to go to church on Sunday morning. Right? It's a lot of work. Well, Moses got the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt. Incredible. Who has ever accomplished so much in a single lifetime? But Moses also failed because he wasn't a closer. He brought them out of Egypt, but he failed to bring them into the promised land. Moses fell short. And so it says, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses. Because Jesus not only brought us out of our bondage to the world, out of the dungeons of sin, out of the solitary confinement of the flesh, he brought us out of darkness into light, out of disillusionment into the abundant life. And it's still happening all around the world. 
They tell us statistically there's thousands of people every day who are experiencing the freedom that only Christ can give. The freedom from bondage, the freedom from sin. So thank God that there's a greater than Moses who is here. How do we measure his greatness? Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The prophets were great men, great people. But here they're compared to something far greater, Jesus. When you think of the prophets, you've got Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, who spoke the words of God because they had been given delegated authority to be ambassadors of heaven, delivering messages from on high. Their words will never be forgotten. But Jesus was even greater because he spoke with his own authority. Because he was not representing someone of superior rank. He was the supreme commander. And so he had the final word. That's why in Matthew 24, 25, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thank God. Because we don't have to think now as men think. We can think as God thinks. For we have the words of Jesus. In the next verse, it talks about the greatness of Jesus in comparison to the angels. It says, So he became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Verse 6, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Angels are impressive beings. So much so, that the veteran disciple named John, in the book of Revelation, on two occasions, almost made the mistake of worshiping them. Revelation 19, verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. There's a big difference between Jesus and the angels. In Revelation 22, verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and seen them, had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The bottom line is that we cannot worship any created being. We can only worship the creator. And that tremendously simplifies things. Because can you imagine? Otherwise, 
every angel would have his own denomination. Thank God that someone greater than the angels is here. How do we measure his greatness? Well, we know there's one angel who wants to be worshipped. Lucifer, the bright and morning star. Satan, who controls this fallen world, who is the dominant influence in our decadent culture. He expects all of us to bow down before him. But he will also accept some reasonable facsimiles, like surrendering to the fatal attractions of temptation. That flatters him. And although Satan doesn't have a lot of followers on Twitter, he sure has a lot of adoring fans on internet porn. And all he really needs to do to accomplish his objectives is is just to find a little opening. For example, losing our temper gives him a foothold. Fear offers him the spare key. Make yourself at home. Satan even tempted Jesus in the wilderness, but our Lord rebuked him so decisively that Satan had no options left, and he fled. And that is still the winning strategy. That is how we can beat the devil. As James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, when it comes to the spiritual realm... The most important thing that you need to know is 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Dear children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The whole world lies under the control of the evil one, but thank God that someone greater is in you. Can you handle one more? Please, sir, I want some more. How do we measure his greatness? Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Jesus was once again surrounded by haters. They were shocked by his unorthodox theology. You're letting your disciples desecrate the Sabbath. Jesus said, well, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day. They have to work in the temple on the Sabbath, but they're exempt. So I tell you that one greater than the temple is here, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And these disciples would become a priesthood of believers in the service of the one who is greater than the temple. But that is absurd. There's no one greater than the temple. That's the most important place on earth. It was the house of God. It was his forwarding address. People came from all over the world to worship God in the temple. But Jesus knew something that they didn't know. There was a vacancy. Their heavenly occupant had left the building because there was too much hypocrisy. Too much pride, too much self-righteousness, too much religious abuse in the temple. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in Matthew 23, 38, he said, look, your house is left to you desolate, an empty shell with a torn veil, and there's a demolition order 
You don't need it anymore because one greater than the temple is here. God moved out of the temple and into a barn near Bethlehem. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in godly form. In godly form. Bodily form, I should say. And the even more amazing thing is that Jesus comes into us, into our lives, and lives in us in all his fullness. And one day everyone will understand how great is our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Because every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the New Testament, the greatness of Jesus is revealed and measured against the greatest names of history, against the greatest forces in this heavenly realms. We've seen that he's greater than the well of Jacob, greater than the witness of Jonah, greater than the wisdom of Solomon, greater than the worth of Abraham, greater than the work of Moses, greater than the words of the prophets, greater than the wonder of the angels, greater than the wickedness of Satan, and greater even than the worship of the temple. And we can transpose those dimensions into our time. And we can say that Jesus is greater than any, any government. He's greater than Trump or Trudeau. He's far greater than the United States. He's greater than science, greater than Wall Street, greater than the Supreme Court, greater than the Super Bowl, greater than Hollywood. He's greater than Google or Amazon or Apple or the Internet. And he's greater than cancer or the coronavirus. He is greater than any fear and he's even greater than death. If that's true, then we can face anything, even a pandemic, because we have heard his word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And if Jesus is for us, who can be against us? Because when we have Jesus, we have everything God can possibly give us. His sufficient grace is more than enough. So we don't ever have to approach God and say, thank you for Jesus, but do you have something more? For Jesus is exceeding abundantly, immeasurably more than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. So it's not about us. It's not even about life. It's all about Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, given him to live within us. And as we have him within us, Lord, we can begin to experience so much more of your grace and your love, so much more of the powerful impact that he had even while he was here on earth. We can experience a transformed life. So Lord, we thank you so much that within us there is the power 
of the risen Lord. May we truly access that power and understand it and live, live it out practically, even this week. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.